2 Chronicles chapter 29, as well as 2 Chronicles chapter 7. We're going to look at 2 Chronicles chapter 7 first. So I gave you those out of order, and I apologize. So 2 Chronicles 7, and then put your finger in 2 Chronicles 29. I want to first of all say I thank the Lord for the privilege of being able to stand up here and preach His Word. It's not something I take lightly. And then I want to thank Pastor, uh, who is um, on vacation, a needed vacation, and I'm thankful that he could go. And I thank him for allowing me to be able to preach this morning as well. He wanted me to give a little bit of a, I guess you would call it a bio on myself. Some, some of you don't know me. I've tried to get around and, and meet different people, but there's a lot of new faces. I grew up here. My mom and dad are Larry and Darlene Brock, and I grew up here. Um, I came, we came here when I was eight years old, so many people in this room know me more than I want them to know me, <laughs> and they know a lot about me, and they like to tell stories about me. Don't believe anything they say, because it's not true at all. Um, every bit of it is false. They're just trying to f- spread falsehood. Um, that is all in jest, by the way. Probably everything they say is true. And it's all working itself out in my children, especially Levi. <laughs> but um, we pray that God gives me the strength not to, yeah, we'll just leave it at that. Um, but we, I grew up here, and then I went to college in Indiana and met my wife, and we got married. And we came back here for about three or four years and helped in the school, and then the Lord led us to Idaho in the middle of nowhere between two mountain passes, I pastored for a year there, and then the Lord led us back to Indiana where we were for the last six and a half years, and just about three or four months ago, we came back here, and my, my dad, who has been a principal and teacher, not all, not all of these years here, but for 40 years, he has been in Christian education, 25 years here and 15 in, in Florida, and uh, next year, he'll be retiring, and I'll be taking over the school. So that is what we're doing here and helping in any other way that pastor needs us to help and trying to be a blessing. So that's a little bit about myself, but you're in 2 Chronicles 7, and we all know this passage, 2 Chronicles 7 and verse 14, says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. If I were to go around this morning and I were to ask each and every one of you, I'm pretty sure that we would agree on these things, that America desperately needs a spiritual revival. And it does. The people of Rapid City desperately need a spiritual revival. And they do. Many churches in America desperately need a spiritual revival. And they do. But while these statements are definitely true this morning, the truth is that you and I desperately need revival. You know, we're all for revival out there, but when it starts to come close to home, we get a little bit nervous. Revival implies that the thing needing reviving isn't healthy. Paramedics don't just revive someone walking down the street in good health. Revival also implies change. And that threatens us because even if we're not doing really well spiritually, we, we tend to get a little comfortable with the predictable. However, this morning, we need, as I said, all of us, constant, 
continuing spiritual revival. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, if my people, which are called by my name, that implies God's people, Every day, the world, the flesh, the devil seeks to pull us back into sin and spiritual apathy, which chokes out that new life that Christ gave to us gloriously at salvation. So really, instead of telling everyone else that they need revival, we all need to tell ourselves that we need revival. And it needs to begin with us individually. And while spiritual revival begins individually, it doesn't stop there. We need revival corporately in our churches. 1 Peter 4, verse 17 says, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them be of them that obey not the gospel of God? Corporate revival comes when the Spirit of God moves on a group of His people, bringing a new awareness of God's holiness and our sinfulness and His abundant grace. And it always results in people beginning to confess their sins and forsake it and seeing sinners saved and bringing great joy into the church. No one can plan revival. Someone said, you can't put a sign outside in our front lawn and say, revival, here. It's a sovereign act of God. From the beginning to the end, it is a work of God. But at the same time, there are conditions that we must meet as God's people so that if God chooses to move among us in a mighty way, that his power and his working in our hearts will not be hindered. You know, Pastor preached a wonderful sermon last Sunday night, and he talked about the church of Pentecost and how they were ready for the Holy Spirit's moving. And as a result, God moved suddenly when it was his perfect timing. Liberty Baptist Tabernacle... We need to prepare, for, prepare our hearts for revival so that when God chooses to move among us in a mighty way, we can be ready. We need to set our sails, as Pastor said, for the Spirit of God to move in our hearts. And in 2 Chronicles 29, we see three essential factors that we need to have in our lives daily if we're going to be ready for that Holy Spirit, for our, the Holy Spirit to move in our lives our families, and our church. And that's, with God's help this morning, I want to look at those three essential factors as we prepare our hearts for revival. Let's pray before we begin. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that it's not me up here standing and saying things, but I am just a messenger, a humble messenger giving the word of God. And I pray that the people here this morning would not hear what I have to say but that they would hear your word and that the Holy Spirit would do what he says he will do, and that is take the word of God and apply it to our hearts and do a work that I cannot do. I pray that you'd move among us in a mighty way and that you'd prepare our hearts for revival. We need revival. And it must begin here in our lives individually and in our church corporately. And Father, then we need to leave it up to you to spread it. Lord, help us to not think about all the other people around us and help us not to think about how America needs revival, but help us to realize how we need revival. Lord, I pray that you'd work as only you can. Help me to say only what I should say, nothing more and nothing less. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. First of all, revival we see, so we were in 2 Chronicles 7. Now turn, if you put your finger there, in 2 Chronicles chapter 29. 2 Chronicles chapter 29, this is where we'll stay 
even though I'll read some other passages as we go along, but this will be our text for 2 Chronicles chapter 29. We see, first of all, in the first 11 verses that revival comes through commitment to the Lord. Revival comes through commitment to the Lord. Let me read those first 11 verses for you. Hezekiah began to reign when he was five and 20 years old, and he reigned nine and 20 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah, and, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according all, to all that David his father had done. He, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them, and he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them together into the east street. And he said unto them, Hear me, ye Levites, Sanctify now yourselves, and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers, and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. For our fathers have trespassed, and done that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord our God, and have forsaken him, and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord, and turned their backs. Also they have shut up the doors of the porch, and put out the lamps, and have not burned incense, nor offered burnt offerings in the holy place unto the Lord, unto the God of Israel." Wherefore, the wrath of the Lord was upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he had delivered them to trouble, to astonishment, and to hissing, as ye have seen with your eyes. For, lo, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in mine heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel, that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, be not now negligent. The Lord hath chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that you should minister unto him and burn incense. You see, Hezekiah took over the kingdom when he was 25 year, uh, from his father when he was 25 years old. However, for the last three generations before him, his father Ahaz, his grandfather Jotham, and his great-grandfather Uzziah either did not worship God at all, they built groves, or they worshipped idols. In other words, for three generations, the true God was not worshipped. And in chapter 28, we see a very grim description of the spiritual situation in Judah under King Ahaz and specifically what he did during his reign. He began by introducing idol worship along the worship of God and ended by closing the doors of the temple, sacrificing to the gods of Damascus and establishing sinners of idol worship in every Judean town. And because of Ahaz's apostasy, the Lord stirred up any enemies against him from every side. It was, it was a fulfillment of what God had said in Deuteronomy chapter 28, where he said, if you obey me, I'll bless you. But if you disobey me, I will make you a proverb and a byword among the nations. The Philistines were invading from the west, the Edomites were taking territory to the east, but the most serious threat was from the north, where Ahaz had tried to buy the friendship of Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria. That held him at a distance long enough for him to polish off the northern kingdom of Israel and their neighbor to the north, Syria, bringing them into captivity. But feeding the monster only made him stronger, and now he was threatening Judah. The Assyrians were known for their brutality. An awesome power. And if they were to overrun Judah, thousands would be slaughtered, families would be torn apart, people would be hauled into captivity as slaves, and the worship of God among his people would be a thing of the past. And you know, in, that light, in the light of that desperate and grim historical setting, the words of verse 3 take on more significance. He, in the first year of his reign, 
in the first month, opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Then he calls the priests and the Levites together and he charges them to consecrate themselves first and then the Lord's house secondly to reverse the awful conditions introduced by his father. Hezekiah then announces that he had purposed in his heart to renew the covenant with God as Asa and Jehoiada had done during their reigns. And he repeats his charge to them. Now it is in mine heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, be not now negligent, for the Lord hath chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that you should minister unto him and burn incense. In other words, Hezekiah's first priority in the face of national crisis was to call, to call the nation and its leaders back to a proper commitment to God. He called them to renew their commitment to God. And we can learn several lessons under this first point from that. First of all, commitment to God is the most pressing need in a time of crisis. Well, let me ask you, what is our natural human response when we're faced with a life crisis? It's to focus on the crisis, right? If you're a king or president, the first thing you do in a national crisis is strengthen your army. If you have a health crisis, the first thing to do is to get medical attention. If you lost your job, your priority is to focus on finding another job. If your marriage is in trouble, your priority is to focus on your marriage. If your teenager or your children are rebellious, your priority is to focus on dealing with your teenager or your children. And please don't understand, misunderstand me this morning. I'm not saying we shouldn't, we should ignore pressing problems. That they demand our attention and we would be negligent to not attend to them. However, we see in Hezekiah's example that the most pressing need in the time of crisis for him was to renew his commitment to God. Amen. And once he renewed his commitment, once we've renewed our commitment to God, then we ought to seek God on how we are to deal with that pressing situation. Matthew 6 and verse 33 says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. God was not taken by surprise with our situation in America. God was not taken by surprise, and God is not taken by surprise with anything that comes into our life. And while hard it may be, and I'm not trying to say that it's not hard, we have to renew our commitment to God. We have to cry out to God. Remember Job? He lost everything. And what did he do? Then Job arose. Even his wife, his best friend, said, curse God and die. What did he say? Job 1, 20 and 21. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. David, who went through many a struggle and some were brought on by his sin, but he was running away from Saul in a cave and he said, I cried in Psalm 142, verse 1 and 2, I cried unto the Lord with my voice. With my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplication. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. Many times there's a reason. I'm not going to say every time because I'm not God and I have no clue, nor am I trying to be God. But many times God brings something into our lives to get us to stop. And to put our priorities back in line. I don't know if I'm the only one that struggles with that this morning. Maybe you're all more spiritual than I am. But we have to remember that our priorities get out of line. 
we're caught up in this world and things are beating us from every side. And we start to start focusing on other stuff. And we need to bring our, renew our commitment. Once we do that, then the Lord begins to deal with us in a way that we could never have done, even if we got everything together, all our strength together, and put it all into that effort in solving, in, in solving it. If you know me enough, you know I'm an OCD person. I want control, okay? I want to be in control of this situation. When I'm not in control of the situation, then it starts to get, as a student, I do this a lot, you know? I start shaking my head, and that means I'm about, okay? They all chuckle at me. And look at me like, you. I knew you were weird, but now I really know you're weird. Um, but you know, the Lord's taught me, and he's still teaching me because I still struggle. Sometimes I have to give it over to him and stop thinking I have to be in control of everything. Commitment to God is the most pressing need in time of crisis. Secondly, commitment to God brings hope in the darkest of situations. You know, Hezekiah just could have thought, looked around and thought, you know, things are so grim. My father shut down the temple. Idolatry is rampant. We've lost all our territory to other nations and we're under the thumb of tiglath Pileser. Why try? He could have grown very depressed and have been paralyzed into doing nothing. But instead, he committed himself to follow the Lord. He rallied the priests to reopen the temple for worship. He called the nation back to God. And as soon as God breaks through any situation, the darkness is dispelled in the light of his presence. There's hope in those grim situations. Down through history, if you look at history, God has broken through the worst of situations and brought hope and light when there was no other way, humanly speaking, to bring hope. It was hopeless. Think of the Reformation. Think of the English revival of the 18th century. So many other historical times where God, it seemed like nothing was going the way that we thought it would go as Christians, but God broke through and brought hope into the darkest of situations. And even though sin is abounding, people are flaunting their sin. Religious liberties are being taken from us. God is still on the throne. He's still in control, and he can break through these darkest of times and bring hope. And this applies not only corporately or having to do with America, but it applies to us personally. You know, you might be going through a trial. You might be going through a situation this morning, and you might feel like God has just kind of left you hanging. But he said in Isaiah 43, verse 1 and 2, Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you an expected end. Then shall you call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, and ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. It's our responsibility, and it's the main thing to do, and that is to renew our commitment to God. Commitment brings hope in the darkest of situations, but commitment also to God always involves a radical commitment to God's word. Now, by radical commitment to God's word, I mean a commitment that goes against what, we used, what we're used to doing, if need be. That goes against the way we were raised, if need be. That goes back to complete obedience to what God's word teaches about how we are to live. Undergirding his, Hezekiah's reforms 
was the fact that he knew the law of Moses and he was committed fully and completely to obey it. He knew what was proper. He knew what was clean. He knew that the, the, the uh, offerings were to be burnt to God, that they were not to be neglected. And he gained all that understanding in verse 15 we see in, that he gained that from God's word. And I, and I think, I tend to think, that maybe he received training in the scriptures from his mother, Abijah, or maybe the influence of a godly priest in his early days. Because, you know, he had a pretty bad upbringing, if you think about it. His father was an abusive, self-centered man who burned some of Hezekiah's brothers to death by offering them to the pagan god Molech. Ahaz has set up idol worship throughout the whole country. Hezekiah could have easily been a rebellious, angry young man, mad at God, mad at his abusive father, and just going with the evil current of the day. But he had to make a commitment. He had to make a commitment to go against that, to go against the grain, and to follow God even when it's, it was against those evil customs that were being being brought about and practiced. Spiritual revival always centers on revival of the authority of God's word in our lives. Luke 14, verse 26 and 27 says, if, a man, if any man come after me and hate not, or that means to love less, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Acts 5, 29, then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than, than man. It's hard. I thank the Lord I was raised in a godly home and I didn't have to go against the grain. My parents loved God. They still love God. They're still faithful to this day. But some people have to go against that grain and sometimes it's hard. Sometimes they have to hard, make hard decisions that your unsaved family members are not going to agree with. And I don't think, as pastor says all the time, we should be a jerk about it. Trust me, there are people who think that it's Christian to be a jerk when they stand for God. You can stand for God in a meek way. By the way, men, meekness is not just a lady's trait. I'm just telling you that. Meekness is strength under submission. You can be strong, but you can also be submitted to God. And you can do it in a right way. Sometimes it's just close the mouth and press forward. Scream into the top of your lungs at everybody. Ha ha, because I'm screaming right now, but I'm just passionate about the Word of God. Okay, I'm not trying to, yeah, I think you understand. But sometimes it just shuts your mouth and just go forward. I'm not saying you shouldn't talk about God. I'm not trying to promote lifestyle evangelism. But I'm just saying some situations mean you just, you say it kindly and you just show them by your example. Somebody said that to me one time as I was a pastor and and. Sometimes it's just more you say it and then you just show them by leading because sometimes that leading, that, that's the, what the Holy Spirit can work through. We get in the way a lot of times. So we see revival comes through commitment to the Lord. And then secondly, revival comes through cleanse, the cleansing in accordance with God's word or in obedience to God's word. As I said before, revival um, we see that in verses 12 through 24. Let me just read those real quick. Then the Levites arose, and then I'm gonna jump down to verse 15 and not read all those names. 
And they gathered their brethren and sanctified themselves and came according to the commandment of the king. This is verse 15, by the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. And the priest went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it and brought out all the uncleanness that they had found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it to carry it out abroad into the brook Kidron. Now they began on the first day of the first month to sanctify, and on the eighth day of the month came they to the porch of the Lord. So they sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days, and in the sixteenth day of the first month they made an end. Then they went to, into king Hez, or to Hezekiah the king and said, We have cleansed all the house of the Lord, and the altar of burnt offering with all the vessels thereof, and the showbread table, with all the vessels thereof. Moreover, all the vessels which King Ahaz in his reign did cast away in his transgression have we prepared and sanctified. And behold, they are before the altar of the Lord. Then Hezekiah the king rose early and gathered the rulers of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. And they brought seven bullocks and seven rams and seven lambs and seven he goats for a sin offering for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. And he commanded the priests that the sons of Aaron... He commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they killed the bullocks, and the priest received the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Likewise, when they had killed the rams, they sprinkled the blood upon the altar. They killed also the lambs, and they sprinkled the blood upon the altar. And they brought forth the he goats for a sin offering before the king and the congregation, and they laid their hands upon them. And the priest killed them, and they made, and they made reconciliation with their blood upon the altar to make an atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering should be made for all Israel. You see, revival comes not only through commitment to the Lord, but also through cleansing according to God's word. It starts individually in the, and then moves outward. It says in verse 5, Sanctify now yourselves and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry forth the filthiness out of, this, out of the holy place. Many of the priests had fallen into unfaithfulness and idolatry, so they had to deal with their own sin before they could go on in the process of cleansing the temple. And God cannot and will not bring revival in our lives and in our church until we first cleanse ourselves from sin and repent of it. You know, repentance is something that sometimes we have a little bit of a skewed uh, understanding of. Repentance is is not just changing one's life, not just turning over a a new leaf, as you would say. Repentance is not doing penance. Repentance is is not just mere remorse for wrong actions. There was a lot of men in the Bible that were remorse, but never did do anything differently. They went out and cried, but then they went right back into their sin. You see, repentance is a change of mind about sin before a holy God that results in a change of life. And I think why we have such a skewed vision and understanding, I guess, if you want to say it that way, of our of repentance, biblical repentance, is because the world's done a really good job, and Tim alluded to this this morning, they've, they've done a real good job of changing biblical words that describe wicked sin to something more acceptable and not as bad. And let me say this first of all. I love the sinner. But as God does, I hate the sin. So when I say this, I want to just put that out there. That I'm not at all trying to say I hate people that believe this way. But sin is sin. Instead of calling it murder, they call it abortion. 
Instead of it being sodomy and an abomination, it's called an alternative lifestyle or gay. Instead of it being pornography, it's called adult entertainment. And instead of adultery, it's called an affair. You see, it's just the watering down and the softening of what God's word says. And I could take you to scripture that shows those things. But if we're going to truly repent, we must call sin what the Bible calls it. We must see our sin as an attack against a holy God, the God who shed his blood and died for the very sin that you and I are trying to cover up and that other people are trying to cover up. He died for that sin. And by the way, he knew every sin we were going to commit. That thought has been on my mind for so long. He knew every sin I was going to commit before I even committed it. And yet he still went to the cross for my sin. And yet we try to water down sin. And again, God loves the sinner. If God didn't love the sinner, he wouldn't send his son to die on the cross. He wouldn't turn from his son and his son cry out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If God didn't love those people that believe this way enough and love them, he would not have sent his son. But sin has to be dealt with. Second Chronicles, the, one we, the, the verse we set, read before, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, gives us the clearest picture of repentance in the Bible. It puts the responsibility right where it needs to be. If my people, which are called by my name, and tell us, as God, and tell God's people, and tell the people of God, relearn the need and art of repentance, revival is not going to come, or it will not last. We have to refuse we have to refuse our sin. We have to humble ourselves before God. We have to pray and we have to seek God's face if we're going to have revival. And I'm just going to real quick go through this. But in verse 5, you see there's a call for personal repentance. So 2 Chronicles 29, verse 5 says, And he said unto them, Hear me, ye Levites, sanctify now yourselves and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. We need to be totally open before God. You know, there's parts of our lives that we're fine with God changing. But then there's parts of our lives where, if you will, we've locked it up. And we've said, God, no, don't go there. When you go there, then you're really going to bother me a little bit. And I'm going to get a little not so happy about the situation. And, 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 and if you're honest with yourself, that's the way sometimes we are before God. But God wants us to be open before him, totally open and allow him to clean out our whole heart so that our whole heart is Christ's home, not just parts of it. David understood this after his sin. In Psalm 139, 23, and 24, he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God cannot and will not fill us unless we're empty of ourselves and our sin. So we see a personal call for repentance. Then we see in verse 6 a corporate recall, a, a call for corporate repentance. For our fathers have trespassed and done that which was evil in the, sight of, in the eyes of the Lord our God and have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. You notice he said, he didn't say my father, he said our fathers. It wasn't just his father Ahaz who had been guilty of forsaking the Lord, but the entire nation. And they had to deal with that. You know, yes, we've sinned, but, and, and yes, America's sinned, but we've sinned as well. As, as Christians, 
We have not, we've been silent way too long about sin and, li- and just living with it. We need to have not only individual but corporate revival. And then in verse 7, we see there is a, reprint, a call to repent of prayerlessness. Verse 7 talks about them shutting up the doors of the porch and putting out the lamps and not burning incense nor offering, uh, offered burnt offerings in the holy place of the Lord. Simply stated, they had failed to seek God for reconciliation. And they had done that because of the lack of their prayerlessness. It's been far too long since we as God's people fell on our faces, faces before God and cried out to Him for reconciliation. If, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. And we have to realize that we're gonna, we need to begin that cleansing in our hearts first. And then in 2 Chronicles, back to, you, you know the verse well enough. In, in chapter 7, verse 14, it says, shall humble themselves. You know, we're prideful. Even if we, God's growing us, but even then, there's still pride in our hearts. We don't like to deal with our sin. We like to justify it. You know, we take more, we, we spend more strength and time in justifying our sin than just getting right with God. And when God or a pastor, our pastor, puts his finger on something and says we need to change it, we go, how dare he? I'm not saying I haven't done that before, and and I've struggled with that, being transparent. Pastor preaches something, or I hear another preacher preach something, and they start preaching my my pet sin or the thing I struggle with. I don't like it. I don't go, yes, finally, he gets to preach on my pet sin. We all are prideful. But 1 Peter 5, verse 5 and 6 says, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. You see, God... God is merciful. He's gracious, but he's not going to just let us flaunt our sin and go, okay, that's fine. That's all right. I'm the holy God that sent my son to die. That's, that's blasphemous to even say that. But yet we live that way in our life. We need to have godly sorrow instead of worldly sorrow. And, and I, for sake of time, I would encourage you to go to 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10 and 11, and read that. Remember, that's the passage that talks about godly sorrow working repentance to salvation and the worldly sorrow working death. It's an interesting study. But godly sorrow regrets sinning against God. Worldly sorrow regrets when you get, your plans were messed up and it backfired on you and got caught. That's worldly sorrow. You get caught and you're saying, oh man, it backfired. But godly sorrow says, I've sinned against a God who is holy and who is righteous. And you know, praise the Lord in all this, that if we're willing to clean up our lives and repent of sin, even, it, even if it takes a long time, it didn't, if you read that as we read it, you see that it didn't just happen like that, that cleansing of the temple. It took a while for them to get all that filth out of there. And it takes a while for God to get all the filth out of our life. But when we're willing to clean it up, you know, it's amazing. God will restore us. Restoration is God's plan, by the way. Independent independent Baptists like to center in on the the sin and kick while you're down, okay? But restoration, they're both important. Repenting and seeing your sin for what it is and restoration are very much go hand in hand. Sometimes we leave out the restoration and we center on the repentance part and we just hammer while while they're down. 
2 Corinthians 6, 17 says, Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And notice this, and I will receive you. And I will be a father unto you. And ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting, the holiness, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Draw nigh to me, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you, James 4 and verse 8. Revival comes through commitment to the Lord. Secondly, revival comes through cleansing according to God's word, repenting of our sins, seeing our sin for what it is. And lastly, as we finish up, revival expresses itself in rejoicing with God's people. If you read, and I'm not going to read it, but I'll just highlight a few things. If you read from verses 25 down to the end of the chapter, you would see that these people were rejoicing for what God had done. The people, got, Hezekiah called the people together and they began to blow trumpets and they began to worship God and praise God for what he had done in their lives. They worshiped God. And rejoicing results when we know that our sins are forgiven. We're not, you know, these people weren't just mumbling through church, looking at their watches and wondering if they'd get home in time to tune into the football game, which obviously they didn't have football games then, but it always sounds good when you say that. Um, their hearts were in it, Okay. Their hearts were in it. They want, and, and again, not, there's nothing inherently wrong with watching a football game. But sometimes we get so caught up in everything else that we've, we're so, we mumble all the time and we're just, you know, we're saved, but we act like we're destined to hell by the way we act. And people come into our churches and they look at us and go, I don't want that. I don't see the joy overflowing from these people. They say they're joyful. They say God's forgiven them of their sin. But yet they just, mumble all the time. They don't sing with joy. They were joyous, but they were also reverent. God is a holy God, and he ought to be praised and worshiped that way. We don't just come in flippantly, but we come in joyfully and reverently. God's worthy of our praise. And, he, and Hezekiah invited these people to rejoice in what God had done. So our worship, in seeing this quickly, our worship should be both joyful and reverent in God's presence. And then here's the neat thing that really got, this is where the Lord laid this sermon on my heart. And as this, is, this is in closing and in conclusion as we finish up. Look at verse 36 of chapter 29. So 2 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 36. And this is where the Lord said, this is what I want you to preach. And I, I couldn't get away from it. It says, in Hezekiah, after all this was done, after they, they renewed their commitment to God, after they cleansed the temple, after they began to rejoice with God, it says in verse 36, And Hezekiah rejoiced in all the people that God had prepared the people. And notice this. For the thing was done suddenly. God had prepared it. In other words, he was the sovereign cause of that revival. And it, but it happened very suddenly. When it was God's perfect timing, God moved in a perfect way. And pastor said, and he preached on Sunday night in Acts chapter 1, 2, verse 1 and 2, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, and they were all with one accord in one place. And by the way, that one accord doesn't come when there's sin. That one accord doesn't come when there's uh, no commitment to God, and not that when we're not fully committed to God. That one accord doesn't come when we are not rejoicing over what God's done. But they were all with, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there was a sound from heaven as a, of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house with where they were sitting. And yet, notice this, and yet this, this is another verse in that chapter, yet this is that which was spoken 
by the prophet Joel hundreds of years before. It was a long time that it was in the working. But God's timing was perfect. And it was done suddenly. And we see the results of that. Chapters 30 and 31, I would encourage you to read it. Because the people had prepared their hearts for revival, the, there was a great revival that had swept through the land. It was, it, was, it, was such, it was such a great revival that had not been seen since the time of Solomon when he had first dedicated the temple. And that's the way spiritual revival moves in our hearts and in our nation. It begins in our heart. John Wesley said, quote, Give me 100 men who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God and I will shake the world. If you and I want revival and the Holy Spirit to move mightily and suddenly in our midst, we must commit ourselves completely to the Lord. That means we might have to go against the grain. We might have to do things that might seem radical to other people. We must cleanse ourselves of all the defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, and then we must join together in worship of God because of what He's done and His abundant grace that extends to all, let me say that, that extends to all who will draw near to him through the blood of Christ. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Every head bowed and every eye closed. As you deal in your hearts with God, let me just ask you a couple questions to ponder in your heart as God works in your heart. First of all, are you 100% sure about your salvation? If God, if Christ were to come back and you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my holy heaven? Would you say because of the church I go to, because of what I've done? Or would you say it's not because of me, but it's because of the blood of Jesus Christ and the mercy and the grace that has been extended towards me? Are you sure about your salvation? Are you preparing your heart for revival? Are you setting your sails for God to do suddenly a mighty work among his people? 2 Corinthians, or sorry, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14 says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. God promised us forgiveness and healing. We just have to humble ourselves, cleanse our hearts, pray and seek his face. Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for the grace and the mercy that has been extended to us. Lord, I know that I'm not worthy of your grace. I fail you every day. Lord, but I thank you so much for the fact that you, even though you knew everything about me, you still decided before the foundations of the world to send your son. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take the word of God and use it in our hearts. And I pray that this, that maybe even today there would be revival in someone's heart, Lord, that we could see change, Lord, for your honor and your glory. Bless in the invitation as only you can work in hearts. In Jesus' name I pray.